0: You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at harvestoakville.ca. You can open up your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. That would be that would be great. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is where we're going to be again Lord willing for the next several minutes. I don't know about you, but I'm glad I showed up to church tonight, because it's so good to be with the people of God, and to be met by God Himself. You know, um, when this church began, our number one goal is that we would gather, and um, that we would encounter the living God, because as the theology teaches us, that if you encounter God, and He shows up, we're good, you know what I'm saying? Like, if we meet with God, it doesn't matter what he says, it doesn't matter what he does, he does it perfectly right every single time. So whether he brings a word of encouragement or even a word of rebuke, it doesn't matter, it's going to make us better, it's going to make us more like him, and so as long as he shows up, we're good. And so that becomes our prayer every day and every week and every month. Please, Lord, please, Lord, draw near that we might be transformed. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I want you to think of this as you have opened your Bible uh, to that chapter. As we have just opened up, um, this is the Word of God, okay? And God wrote a book. This, this is it. Um, that, that's pretty special. There's only one book in the history of the universe that God has written start to finish, okay? Uh, you're holding it if you have one. Don't let that get familiar. Don't, don't let it get familiar As you wake up in the morning or whatever you're doing, and you kind of, I guess I'll just kind of take a look. and then Don't let it get familiar. You're holding a book that God has written. That's pretty exciting, isn't it? That's pretty exciting. And what happens is, though, we get familiar with that truth, and we take it and him for granted. So this is a good time. This is a good time to probably turn to your neighbor and say, "Uh, you should read this book. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, You should definitely uh, read this book. Amen. Amen. I love moments like that because it reminds me, listen, of what is true, right? It's what's true. As we turn there now and we look at verses 6 to 10 today together, in one of the most popular hymns ever written, and if I took a survey right now, the most popular hymn ever written, probably many of you would say uh, the hymn by John Newton, Amazing Grace. And amazing grace, it says, amazing grace, so sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now what? I see, yes, was blind, but now I see. Now that phrase right there, that saved a wretch like me, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. That right there is a description of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When the gospel of Jesus Christ is received by faith, one of the immediate and instantaneous differences that occurs in that individual is they are granted and they are given a supernatural vision. The person is made new by the Holy Spirit, regenerated, old is gone, new has come. They are made new They are a new creation. They are born again. And when they are born again, as part of that process, they now have eyes that can see. They can see God. They can see the purpose of life. They can see Jesus Christ. They can see the reality that the Holy Spirit lives within them. They can see death, but they can see life. They can see hell, but they can see heaven. They can see why it is they are here on this earth. They can see what's coming. Maybe not perfectly. Maybe they don't understand it all right now. But they can see the reason again that they are here and the reason Jesus Christ came and lived and died Died and rose again from the dead, they can see this is what it means to be made new. Do you remember the moment in your life when you were made new to the point where you could see? Were you like me walking through life, looking at self all over the place, staring at the world, and then the gospel comes and goes bam and rocks you and changes you and saves you, and then all of a sudden the fog dissipates, the curtains are drawn. The sun is dawned upon your life where you can see for the very first time the scales were lifted. Isn't that the greatest moment ever? In the life of a man or woman who was dead but now is alive, who was lost but now is found, who was blind but now who can see? This is what it means to be made new. When we are made new by the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have new eyes. We have a new vision. The world can't see it. The world doesn't get it. But Jesus Christ gives it. Second Corinthians 5, verse 7 is the th- hub of our passage. So look at verse 7. Don't look at me. Look at the Bible. Look at uh, chapter 5, verse 7. And it says here, For we walk by faith, what does it say? And then not by sight. We walk by faith and not by sight. Now the power of this verse is to understand this. Physical sight leads to death. If the person can only see physically, that's not going to save them. Every person born, some level, see, hears on a physical basis. Listen. But spiritual sight is what leads to life. Only people who are born again, spiritually, receive a spiritual vision to see the spiritual realm, to see the impact of Jesus Christ. But people without faith, people who are not born again, they might hear, they don't really hear, they might see, they don't really see. This is why Isaiah prophesied about such people stuck in unbelief. And Jesus quoted Isaiah and said, and you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. So all these people walking across this world, hearing, but not really hearing, seeing, but not perceiving the reality of the gospel. But then, when the Spirit of God comes and causes someone to be made new, when that person is instantaneously regenerated by the Spirit of God, they are made new, and then all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit grants the gift of faith. Regeneration leads to faith. And when faith is granted, that is when true vision reveals the light of life. Again, so glorious and amazing. Week number one. We see we are made new, we get a new body. Week number two, we find out that we have new vision. We can see. I can see, I can see. Lord Jesus Christ, when faith is granted, this is why our sermon title then is is this. Made new means, means I can see. It means I now walk by faith and not by sight. My vision is no longer just physical. My vision is now spiritual. Let's... Let's look at our text here, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 6. Paul says, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Everything's changed, you see? Yes, he says, he's repeating himself now, making emphasis on what he is saying. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, meaning in the body or in heaven with Christ, we notice, make it our aim to please Him. It's all about the Lord, isn't it? Verse 10, For And here's the reason for this. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. The hub of our text is verse 7. Walk by faith, not by sight. That's the hub. And from the hub come the spokes, pointing back to the hub. What does it mean to walk by faith? And not by sight. What does it mean to truly see? We're going to find out here. If I can truly see. The amazing thing about this text right now. And all these people in this room right now. I mean just the privilege of speaking to so many people. I mean, who am I and who are we to even doing this right now? It's just it's incredible to me. But the reality is of all the people in this room right now. Not everyone can truly see. And some of us can see, our vision can get blurred sometimes, and we have left our eyes from that which we are supposed to look at, and whom we are supposed to look at, and then we get discouraged because our eyes have not been fixed on Jesus, but have been fixed on self. Well, Paul wants to take the people back here in the church of Corinth, in the church of Oakville right now, and he says, I, I want to remind you what it means to truly see, and if you can truly see, this is, this is what happens. If we have spiritual vision... This is what will take place. The first thing is, is this. If I can truly see, I will always find courage. I mean, hear that, receive that, write that, get that, understand that, live that. If I can truly see, um, I will always, and I stress the word always, okay? It's in the Bible. I will always find courage. So the first word in verse 6 is what? In my translation and most of yours... Verse 6, the first word is very important. The first word is so. What is so here? So here is a conjunction. Loved ones, when you're reading the Bible, look for the conjunctions. So often the conjunctions are so powerfully presenting one argument of truth to another argument of truth and the power of seeing they're building the foundation and they unleash then the next level or the application. The conjunction here is so, tying verses one to five to verses six to 10. Paul builds an argument of truth and now he says, therefore, since, because, so, so then, because of this truth, so the word so causes us to remind ourselves in verses one to five. So because you cannot die, so because you know that death is actually the entrance way to life, so because you know that the Holy Spirit within you is a guarantee of all that's been promised, so so because you know this, what does Paul say in verse six? Paul says, so because you know this, he says, Cheer up. That's my translation. Okay? But um, one of the meanings of the original, we are always of good courage. It does mean to be confident, it means to be bold, It it means to be of good cheer. I want you to see here, do not miss this. I want you to see the reality of good theology always leads to great joy. I'll say it again. Good theology always leads to great joy. Notice here, so because of all this truth, going to heaven cannot die, guaranteed, we are always of good, really, Paul, always, always, man, always. We are always of good courage. We are always of good courage, yet another place in the Bible where it's telling us that in the light of the gospel, all of us saved in Christ, that means today is another great day, good day. You know that? In the gospel, every day is another great day, is another good day. Why? For the reasons Paul just said. It's another great day regardless of how our job is doing, regardless of what our home life is like, regardless of where we are in society, regardless of where our bank accounts are. In light of the gospel, we are always of good courage because Paul says, last time I checked, you're saved, you're alive, Christ loves you, you're guaranteed glory. Nothing can separate from the love of God. This life will be over soon and you'll be in heaven with Christ forever. That makes today yet another great day. Do you see how good theology always leads to great joy? See, the problem is we don't rehearse good theology enough to lead us to great joy. What we do is we forget the theology. We don't see. We focus on the world. We look at ourselves. We complain about our circumstances. We whine about our misfortune, and our eyes have just went off of Christ onto ourselves. Of course, we'll be depressed, and that's why Paul says, "So you're saved. You're alive." Christ loves you. We are always of good courage. Hey, loved ones, cheer up. And you know what? Hey, Robbie, cheer up, dude. Cheer up, man. The Lord loves you. And he's got you. And he will never leave you. I love singing tonight, your love never fails. I love singing Jesus, only Jesus. I loved when Christ shall come, a shout of acclamation. I just love it. I just love him. Love him. And just to get the theology to run through your mind, and then to, you know, what happens? Your theology goes to your mind, it hits your heart, and then eventually it's going to hit your face. Right? It's just, it's amazing to me the people with all the truth in their heads, but it never goes anywhere beyond there. But when theology is rightly applied, it goes here, here, and then eventually it's going to go here, and maybe there's tears, maybe there's a smile, maybe there's an expression of, wow, I can't believe this is true. Whatever it is, it's good. It's good. And it causes you to feel pretty good too. This is what the gospel does. When Paul says that we are always of good courage, it means to be confident again, bold. It it means that someone is convinced about something. So notice what he says here, verse 6. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, here on earth, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. One day we're going to see Jesus Christ face to face. amen, amen. 1 Corinthians 13, awesome. But the verse 8, yes, he says, again, emphasis repeating, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Now, I don't mean to be a broken record, okay? But one of the things I must do to faithfully teach God's word is to keep showing you what God keeps telling us. And what God keeps telling us here, the secret and the power to Paul's life his courage, Paul, how are you so courageous? How are you, how are you living this way? How did you kind of say, oh, I don't care if I lose everything. How did you, how did you get beaten by rods? How did you get stolen? How did you keep uh, persevering? In how did you do it? It's all rooted here. His courage comes from his conviction. His conviction of what will be. And notice this, Paul expects the same of us. He says, now we we believers are always of good courage the reason paul he's so bold in his approach to god and the reason he's so bold as he approaches god is because he's so convinced of the gospel i mean if you trace through second corinthians all he's doing is really rehearsing the gospel Um, out loud. Let me summarize. Paul's like, I live in Christ. I belong to God. I cannot die. I'm destined for glory. I'm being transformed. My home is waiting. My future is guaranteed. My security is perfect. I will win. I cannot lose. I'm a child of God. I'm a sheep belong to the shepherd. I am everything in Christ and because of Christ then. These are the reasons that I am so confident and so courageous because this is my conviction. Paul sees his reality and it carries him forward in the midst of death itself because he's so transfixed on the beauty of Christ and the life that Jesus Christ promises. So I want to just take a few moments here to do some biblical counseling 101, okay? And I'm going to put some stuff on the screen for you here. And I just want you to, I, just, I love pointing out the obvious. Okay? And so much of what we're doing in scriptures, we're just trying to, here's the obvious, here's the meal, here's what you got to eat. Don't make it so complicated. Notice with Paul's life, we're learning this already in the first six, seven verses of chapter 5 and everywhere else as well. Notice his calling, he has been called by God, saved by God, chosen by God before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1. His calling leads to courage. He knows God has called him. He's not responsible for his own life. God is. When you know that you're called, you know that you're called to glory, that gives you courage. There's courage in understanding your calling. You rehearse your calling. It's called the gospel, saved in Christ. His conviction, conviction strengthens courage. So when you know you're called, you become convinced. And the conviction, you must remind yourself in your conviction of your calling. And both of these strengthen one another. Conviction then leads to courage. He's so convinced of his calling and then convinced of this reality, it leads him to live this out. And notice this courage, biblical courage, to be courageous means I don't give up. It means I continue because what else will I live for? Paul's like, I'm not going to live for the world, I'm not living for myself, I'm living for Christ. So because I have so much calling and conviction, of course I'm courageous and then I continue. See, people who give up, people who leave, the, they were never truly saved. The parable of the sword, they respond to the word with joy, it says, but when tribulation persecution comes, they fade away. But when you're truly saved in Christ, you'll have ups and downs. You're going to get in the ditch, but you will get back up, and you will continue because you find courage and conviction and calling. And then this, courage means confidence. And confidence, again, courage is I cheer up. Because I'm so confident of what's ahead Now, one more thing I want to show you here next slide okay watch this right our right theology leads to our right foundation and will lead to a powerful courage okay? the reason many many believers have, don't have powerful courage is because they've left the foundation or they, they've been distracted from the foundation of the reality of the this loved ones why do I wake up every morning and read the Bible this is why I can't do I don't wake up every morning and read the Bible because I want a check mark. I wake up and read the Bible because I want God. Understand? I need my mind to be renewed every single day. I call it flushing the toilet of my mind. Forgive me, okay. Forgive me, but it works for every day in this world. I am being bombarded, as you are, by false teaching in infinite amount of sources. And every day I gotta open up God's word. I gotta get right theology to get my foundation built back up again, and then I find power and courage to live the Christian life. If we fail to do our theology, reading God's word and loving Him through prayer, we won't have a foundation. We won't have courage. This is not just for the pastor, man. This is for every man and woman and child who desires to have an authentic relationship with the Lord, living day in, day out. Not so God says, good boy, good girl. So God says, now I want you to know my truth and you will know my power and love and I can work within you. If we look at our verses again, if we look at our verses again, what do we see in verses six to eight? We see here, Paul is explaining that to be in the body is to be away from the Lord. Okay? Now, now think about that. Paul says to be in the bodies to wait for the Lord. This is another way that Paul is saying, I've tasted the meal, I've 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 sampled the dish, but but I long for the whole thing. So he's saying I'm not there yet. I know that the full meal is coming, but I've had a, a tasting of it here and now. So so away. Away from the Lord. He says, We are away from the Lord. We were in the body here on earth. But then, and he says here, We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So he says, We, we are at home in the body here on earth, in our physical body, away from the Lord. But he says, But in verse 8, he says, We would rather be away from the body and at home. With the Lord now, what this truth teaches us right here, okay, and this is this is important. Just stop for a second right here. This teaches us that a moment a believer, die, a genuine believer in Christ, dies. The moment they die, they are with the Lord, one hundred percent. Okay, right here, Paul's saying we're not here on earth; we're with the Lord. Okay, so this verse right here, verse eight, that blows up any any teachings of purgatory. Okay, blows it up. It blows up any teachings of soul sleep. That somehow when a Christian dies, they fall asleep and then they wake up when Christ returns. No, no, no. The, The believer who passes from this life goes instantly to be with the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, not in the resurrection bodies yet. That's coming when Christ returns. But they are there, their souls are with Christ. If you've lost a loved one who knew the Lord Jesus Christ, you can be assured right here in verse 8, they are presently right now in the glory and the presence of their Savior Jesus Christ, and they're having a good day too, okay? You can know that for sure, 100%. But here's what I want you to notice here in the text for us while we're still here on this earth. Notice Paul's eschatology. Eschatology is what? It's the study of last things, okay? Okay. Notice Paul's eschatology leads to such encouragement. His eschatology encourages him so much because it's his eschatology, study of last things, which fixes his eyes on the reality of his future, lets him to see Christ, the reason he lives, and then he's filled with hope, faith, and strength. See, so we look beyond this life to Christ and all that's promised to us to get strength, to be encouraged, to find hope, to remind ourselves of the reason we actually live. It is a good and right thing to think upon, to dwell upon, to long for the glory that awaits us. So question, this is where Paul's looking and he's like, hey, and we need to look. We wanna cheer up, we look, we look. And the question we ask ourselves is, well, what are we looking at? Hey, hey, what are you looking at? Like in life, like, what are you looking at? What are we looking at? Do we think this way? Do we live this way? Do we talk this way? Is our example in this way? I see a, a great verse by Peter in this, in this whole truth from 1 Peter 1. I, I, love, I love this. Though you have not seen him, okay, physically, okay, you love him, though you do not now see him. Physically, you see him spiritually. How? Here. You believe. You believe. You believe in him. And notice, and notice what faith does. Good theology leads to good joy, great joy. You rejoice. This isn't just great joy, this is inexpressible joy. I mean, who doesn't want that, huh? Hey, you can get it. Like the Lord can move in your life now, today, tonight. The problem is our eyes are so often on stuff of the world and ourselves and material things and that's what discourages us so much. But you get your eyes or you will never stare in the face of Jesus Christ and feel that down. You will never stare in the face of Jesus Christ and feel that down, ever, ever. Notice, joy is inexpressible and filled with glory. And look, 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 ready? Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You see, you see, what's Peter doing? He's looking, man, he's logging, man. He's loving his Savior here and what's to come. And it causes him to say, I can't see him physically, man, but I see him spiritually. And my faith has led to an inexpressible joy. And that's so exciting. Hey, loved ones, cheer up, man. Cheer up. When we can truly see, we will. We will find a joy that overcomes any sense of temporary, worldly, discomfort or discouragement. The power of this theology is it overrides all of that that's found here on the earth. If I can truly see, I will always find courage. Here's the second thing we learn from our text. When I can truly see, I will purpose to please him. I will purpose to please him. Now look at verse nine now. So Paul says, so whether we are at home or away, so again, another conjunction there starting verse nine. We make it our aim, I would circle that, underline that, to, to please him. So I love how God's word is so deep and so rich. It's so practical and so clear. Can you see here how spiritual sight brings spiritual focus? Notice that? When you can see spiritually, you see so clearly. Your focus is so sharp. Paul's conclusion to all his theology is this. He says, regardless of whether we're uh, home or away, Regardless of whether we're here on earth or we're at home with the Lord, he said the purpose remains the same. Okay? So when we're studying Scripture, um, always look for the verbs in the verses because the verbs are where the power lies. And you see the, the power verb in verse 9 in ESV is aim. It's the word aim. Our purpose, our, our, our aim. In the, in the New American Standard, it's translated ambition. Um, In NIV, it's translated, our goal. So notice here, Paul's saying, because of all this theology, we're learning here that the pattern of our lives, the goal of our lives, the ambition of our lives, the target, the the purpose, the aim of our lives is to please, is to please the Lord. Paul says, "This this is the aspiration of my life, is to please Him, and why? Well, here's the question. What else would you live for? That's a good question. What else would you live for? If you're not living for the Lord, who are you living for? If you're not living for the Lord, what are we living for? But here it is again. You see? You see? Ready, ready? To truly see is to truly live. The church needs to wake up, man. And take off the blinders. So many people not seeing clearly. I want you to see this too, just again. Forgive me for all these things. Okay, but I I love Bible logic. Notice this. Notice this biblical pattern of logic, where there's purpose, then there's passion. There's no passion without conviction. It's impossible. The most passionate people in the world have the strongest convictions about something. When there's purpose, there's passion. When there's passion, then there's power. See that? This is what Paul's He's living this out. I know my purpose. I'm so fired up about my purpose. And then God infuses him with power because he's so clearly seeing his purpose and so in love with Jesus Christ. That's why um, I can neither understand, resonate, and tolerate in some ways a preacher who stands up with God's word and looks bored. I don't get that. He, he's yawning, and the people are sleeping. I don't get that. Dude, what book are you reading? What book are you reading? Hey, Are you sure it's God's word? Because it looks like you're reading something else. What's wrong with you? Wake up. Wake up, preacher. Come on. Come on, like it, the, the Lord is speaking. Like look at the truth you're looking at. This is, this is so awesome. This is, this is the work of God. This is, this is lives are at stake. This is the message that saves people from death and hell. This is the one that Jesus Christ moves in. The Holy Spirit wrote this book. Come on, preacher boy. Act like you're, you're actually teaching the book that God has written that has been used for, for, for centuries to turn people's lives from, from death to life, from being blind to seeing. I just don't get it. But when those who do get it, and that's, that's exciting, isn't it? It's exciting. But that, that is what happens when we see so clearly. But what happens, though, when, when we don't see clearly? What happens when our, our vision is, is blurred? When our vision gets blurred off the gospel, when our vision gets blurred off of our purpose in Christ... What happens is, is that we lose passion, of course, and we lose power. We lose urgency. Let me take a moment to just go through um, four causes of blurred vision within our lives. I could probably state hundred of these, okay? but here are four causes of blurred vision. Number one is this. It's, it's the person who lives the distracted life. The person who's distracted in life, and this is the kind of person that like when 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 like the phone buzzes, they're like vroom over there to find out I get a text, I get a text, I get a text, you know? And they're distracted by the TV. They, they can't like, it's amazing to me, man, the attention span of some kids and the TV's on, just like. <laughs> and then you're trying to like, as a parent, you're just trying to you're just like you're just like, hello hello and it's amazing how that's a metaphor for some people's whole lives they're just distracted by everything else and they don't they're not looking up man because one thing to the next and their eyes kind of glaze There's, there's no vision distraction often by the way can be um the doubt filled life this is still number one the doubt filled life i i thought of um doubting thomas and he was so distracted by his own thoughts, he's so distracted by his own, that he missed, he missed it. If I don't see it, if I don't see it, and Jesus is like, hey man, I'll show you, I'll show you, I'll show you. The distracted life blurs our vision. Here's the second one, the, um, the chaotic life. Now I'm gonna uh, label a biblical character for this is, um, is Martha, okay? Martha was doing good things, but the problem is Martha was missing the one thing that was necessary, that Mary was sitting down and receiving the teachings of Jesus. It's amazing to me, How many things we try to do in our lives? The events and the meetings and the kids and the schooling and the activities and the self-interest and the hobbies and the I mean, have you have you stopped long enough? I just think this is so important. Like the the chaos with which we operate in as as Martha's, you understand the majority of what our life is chaos with in the end won't matter, right? Like this, this is where theology helps again. It's amazing. Time out, parents. Time out. What are you actually doing with your kids and why? What is the end result? What will it prove to be in their lives for the Lord and the gospel of Jesus? I said this last night to friends. The more my theology gets rightly lined in right perspective, the less I care about extra stuff in terms of my children. We're doing it, we're having fun. I'm glad to see them do well in certain things, but the less I care to say they're going to do this and they're going to be this and they're going to get that and, and the chaos ensues and the vision gets blurred. And that's just one example. That's just one example. Think of the guys in business, man. There's like 70 hours a week and they can never stop and they're running on the hamster and the hamster, and they're just like, wait, wait, at some point you're going to have to retire and then what do you do? And then you say, well, what is my life about? What am I doing? Exactly. The Lord's like, hey, dude, 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 man. Life is more than your business. It's more than that. Here's the third thing that blurs our vision. The worldly life. I'm calling this um, Demas, 2 Timothy 4. And Paul speaks of Demas who has deserted them because he was in love with this present world. And obviously you cannot love money and God. If we love the world, we don't love the, the Lord. And so the worldly life, the person who's just constantly obsessed with the world. That's, that's going to blur our vision as fast as anything. And then this last one, I, I wrote this down. Um, the self-driven life. The self-driven life, I'm going to label as Judas. Because the inherent motivation of your life, you can dress it up with Christianese, there can be some elements of serving, there can, can be, but, but it, in reality though, I want it to be about me. And in the end, I will prove that. So really, my motives are selfishness. And that blurs our vision so fast. The scary part about that is the self-driven life can be way apart from the Lord, but the self-driven life can be very close to God in the sense of like in the church and getting active and kind of looking the part, but if you actually saw the heart, then you'd you'd see that it's not about God at all, it's about self, and that blurs the vision, and then that's when pride pride blinds us to our blindness, and we're devastated. Now, one, two, three, four, now watch this. This is what happens, okay? All of these will add to this. All of these will, in the end, add to this. The joyless life. You can't, you can't have blurred vision and somehow find true joy. You can't do it. True joy comes from the gospel. True joy comes from Jesus Christ, okay? Let me, let me say this. When you have the gospel and you rightly see, the gospel takes a beautiful grenade, spiritual grenade, and throws it into all these lives, these lifestyles, and it blows them up. It just blows them up. And then all of a sudden, all the distractions are gone and the worldliness and the selfishness and the chaos, it kind of all just kind of dissipates again and you see, and you're like, I see my purpose. And what is the purpose according to our text in verse nine? Our purpose is to please him. It's to please the Lord. Our purpose in life and in glory is to please him. Why do you think Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God? Why did Paul say, set your mind on things above? Why did Peter say, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you? Why did John say, do not love the world or the things in the world? Why? Because this is the outworking of the gospel in our lives. When I see my purpose, I live to please him. I live to please him. See the power of having clear vision? The power of clear vision, it changes everything. When you see Christ clearly, everything else seems to come into focus. You want to work on your marriage? Start with clear vision. You want to be a better employee? Start with clear vision. Do you want to run your business more smoothly? Start with clear vision. Do you want stronger relationships in life? Start with clear vision. Do you want deeper joy? Clear vision. Are you lacking purpose? Clear vision. Want to be a better parent? Clear vision. Do you want to fight loneliness? Clear vision. Do you want to fight against fear? Clear vision. Clear vision changes everything. Because you will never stare again in the face of Jesus Christ and feel let down ever. And that's when we realize that my purpose and my calling is to please him. Again, verse nine, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim, our target, our purpose, our goal, our ambition is to please him. Hey, um, if you're like me, okay, just if you're like me right now and you're in this text, you will say to the Lord in all honesty, you say, Lord, I repent of living significant sections of my life trying to please self and not you. Forgive me. Not to us, O oh Lord, not to us but to your name be the glory. When we see clearly, we care not for self. And the last point I want you to see here is when we see clearly, number three, um, I will make my life count. Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? If I can see the reality of why I live, well, then I'm gonna live according to that truth. So look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive... What is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Again, here's our reason to please the Lord. Now understand, loved ones, this is written here. Second Corinthians 5 is written to believers. It's written to the church. Notice Paul says, for we, we, him, believers, we must all, all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now you're reading this, you're like, judgment seat of Christ, Bema, Bema. You're like, wait a minute, I thought the judgment seat was for unbelievers. Uh, Yes and no. This is not speaking of the great white throne judgment and Revelation chapter 20 where that's the judgment between death and life, eternal death, eternal This is a judgment that is speaking about for believers as to how they have used what God has entrusted them with in this life. Okay, let me be crystal clear. This judgment in 2 Corinthians 5 is not about our salvation. It's not about our salvation at all. Amen. When the person is is born again and they are forgiven of their sins, they are justified by faith. All of their sins, all because of what Christ has done. He has done it all. We can't do anything to save ourselves. This judgment has nothing to do with someone losing or gaining their salvation. This judgment, however, notice in verse 10 it says, for what we have done in the body. So what this means is, there's a judgment. There are rewards given out to believers, not based on salvation, but based on how have they used, again, what God has given them. So what we learn here is one commentator said this, it is possible to have a saved soul, but a wasted life. It is possible to have a saved soul, but have a wasted life. Okay, Okay, ready? This just did. Don't waste your life. Don't waste your life, man. We still, got, we still got chances here. We still got moments. We're learning here that a believer without urgency for the Lord, for the gospel, a believer without urgency is a believer who doesn't get it. They're asleep or something. And the Bible says, wake up. It's a believer who has lost sight of who matters. Now think, think, eh? Think, think what the Bible's telling us right here. Verse 10 we must all appear before the judgment seat on some way or another to have to give an account with what we did with our lives. Think about that. Think about that. Remember, the moment, the moment we stand before Christ at this judgment, we will, we will cease to care about our kids' sports. Okay, Remember that. Remember that. We will cease to care about our flat screen TVs. We will cease, to, you will cease to care about the stock markets. Just, just remember that. That will happen. We will not care about the things of the earth. So what I've always tried to, as a very young believer, I believe there's so much. I believe eternity matters. I believe the only thing that counts is what we do for Jesus Christ. I believe it. So now, okay, Robbie, then live it. I believe it's true. I believe it's true. I believe it's true. Well, then live like it's true, Simons. Apply it and wait. If you're like, every day, i got to hear this truth again because the moment I get it, the next day I lose it. But right now, my mind is renewed again to the point it busted me up this week again and the sin was on the table and the grace of God came in and the brokenness was felt and the desire for the renewal of the Lord to make my life count is there again in the midst of the difficulty, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the trial. But you see, and then you're like, Lord, I don't want to waste it. As the poem goes, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. You know, I appreciate here in this I appreciate the tension of how the Lord allows us to sit in the tension of everlasting, inexhaustible grace, and yet, hey children, get after it. Like, I've paid for all your sin. You can't do anything to lose my love. You can't anything, do anything to, to, to gain greater status in my eyes as for salvation. Grace is there, unmerited, totally granted by the cross of Jesus Christ, unconditional, and yet he's like, get after it. See, but because I've given you everything, child, because you're covered in inexhaustible grace, because I loved you so much, won't you love me? And the way you, you love me is by doing anything you can for me. Because that's what love does. That's when we make our lives count. That's when we understand grace. The believer who sits back with fire insurance is the believer who, again, who doesn't get it. I think one of the greatest weaknesses in the modern church is that we live as though this world is all there is. And this is why the Bible calls us to more. I want to end with a little story here today. This is written down in... Charles Spurgeon, autobiography. He tells a story of a mother who was just saved and converted, and her eyes were opened, okay? Now, I don't tell this story to make people feel guilty. I do tell this story to see conviction as I received it first. Always remember that, okay? I have to go through the conviction first, okay? And then I pass on the conviction to you, okay? Okay, so he tells a story of a woman who was saved. This is a couple hundred years ago. But I was really blessed by that and I prayed about it and I believe this is going to be helpful for us here too. Um, Oh, sir, the lady said. She was just saved. Oh, sir, said she. I should be quite happy now. Only I'm happy about her salvation. She's been transformed. She sees it. Only I have one sore trouble which keeps me very low. I'm so sad about my dear children. I was left with eight of them. And I worked hard at the washtub and other ways, morning, noon, and night, to find bread for them. I did feed and clothe them all, but I am sure I don't know how I did it. I had often to deny myself both in food and clothing, and times were very hard for me. Nobody could have slaved worse than I did to mend and clean and keep a roof over our heads. I cannot blame myself for any neglect about their bodies, but as to their souls, I never cared about my own. Of course, I never thought of theirs. Two of them died. I dare not think about them. God has forgiven me, but I can't forget my sin against my poor children. I never taught them a word of which could be any use to them. The others are all alive, but there is not one of them in the least religious. How could they be when they saw how their mother lived? It troubles me more than a good deal than all the working for them I ever did, for I'm afraid they are going down to destruction and all through their cruel mother. Spurgeon says, Here she burst into tears, and I pitied her so much that I said I hardly thought she was cruel, for she was in ignorance. And would never intentionally have neglected anything that was her children's good. She said, don't excuse me. For, I have used, for if I would used my common sense, I might have known that my children were not like the sheep and the horses which die. And there's an end to them. I never thought about it at all. Or I might have known better and I feel that I was a cruel mother never to have considered their souls at all. They are all worldly. None of them go to a place of worship. Year in and year out, I never took them there. And how can I blame them? As soon as I was converted, I went down to my eldest son, who was a large family. I told him what the Lord had done for me and entreated him to come here with me to the services. But he said he wondered what next and had no time. When I pleaded hard with him, he said he was sure I meant well, but it was a no-go. He liked his Sunday at home too well to go hear pastors. She said this. this is, she said, you know, sir, to Spurgeon, you can't bend a tree, but I ought to have bent the twig when I could have done it. Oh, if I had but led him to the house of God when he was little. He would have gone then, for he loved his mother and he does so now, but not enough to go where I want him. So you see, I can do nothing with my son now. I was a cruel mother and let the boy go into the fields or the streets when he should have been in Sunday school. Oh, that I could have my time back again and have all my children around me as little ones, that I might teach them about my blessed Savior. They're all beyond me now. What can I do? When I read that story, it creates a fire of urgency in me to see more clearly as to what really matters. The thing about the story, we don't know how the story ended. When a life is that transformed, when a life is that powerfully moved by the gospel of Jesus Christ, I mean, God is going to use it in some form, in some way. What I want you to do from that story is see this. The impact of seeing clearly, the urgency of seeing clearly, the focus of seeing clearly, and all this lady wanted to do was to make her life count because she saw the gospel so nothing else seemed to matter anymore did it it was the work of jesus christ